So this is the last time we'll get together during the week, uh, other than, oh, other than uh, Pie Palooza for um, Thanksgiving Eve. You know, we're going to do that again, 7 to 8, we'll have pies and stuff, so um, just to get everybody started for Thanksgiving. Uh, we won't have a, any midweek stuff again until, um, you know, after the first of the year. I haven't figured out yet what kind of midweek Wednesday night Bible study we're going to do, but we do know that we're going to have two Theology Thursdays. We're going to have um, uh, January 26th, yeah, I think it's January 20, yeah, January 26th, Tom Schrader's going to come and he's going to do a presentation on aging that is nothing like you've ever heard before on aging, I guarantee you. You're going to be like, yeah, aging, schmaging, I've heard all of that. Save money for retirement. He's not going to talk about that. Uh, it's going to be, uh, I've heard this. He's been doing it in several of the other churches, like New City all around. It's been incredible. And then um, February 22nd, we're going to have a really special gospel and marketplace evening, which we'll tell you more about later. And then in March, we might do a Theology Thursday with Cody and myself on worship. Um, so anyway, just to give you an idea, thinking about midweek Bible study, we might do five weeks in the book of Amos. Um, Stephanie, who is like my personal Holy Spirit, uh, said that she seems to think that we need to do as much as we can in the Old Testament on Wednesday nights because we seem to be a lot more driven by the New Testament on Sunday mornings. And so, and she also knows of my love of the, New Test the Old Testament too, so that's good. And so here we are in Song of Solomon last week, week four. Tonight the dream and all the anxiety are over with. Uh, the two are going to praise each other. Uh, we're going to see their love grow. And then, then this book really ends with some counsel. And then I'm going to use really material from all four weeks to kind of uh, bring us to our final application point that I think is pretty important. So we're going to dive right in. Uh, chapter 6, verses 4 through 10. This is Solomon speaking. You are beautiful as Tizra, my love. Tizra is a city. Lovely as Jerusalem. Awesome as an army with banners. Turn away your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes. This should sound familiar to you. That have come up from the washing. All of them bear twins. You're not missing any teeth. Not one of them... Uh, has lost its young. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. That's an interesting verse. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one, the only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. The young women saw her and called her blessed, the queens and concubines also, and they praised her. Who is this that looks like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? So Tizra is a city north of Judah, and it was eventually, uh, for about 40 years, the capital of the northern kingdom, Israel, after Solomon's sons split the kingdom in 922. So this is probably uh, 50 years after the writing of this. So Tizra was, was known then for its absolutely majestic beauty, but by the 800s BC, Tizra had been overrun and was no longer a city of any consequence if it even existed. But its beauty rivaled that. Some, one commentator wrote, think of Victoria, British Columbia. Has anybody ever been to Victoria? Okay, think of that city and you might get an idea of how beautiful Tizra uh, is. So she, he's paying her a compliment. And then he says she is... Awesome as an army with banners. What does that mean? Uh, it means that in addition to her beauty, she inspires respect from others because of the strength of her godly character. That's, that's what that compliment uh, means. Um, one scholar says, from this metaphor, we grasp that the woman, the Shulamite woman, has imposing presence, personality, and intelligence. The Shulamite woman, therefore, is both dignified and beautiful, which is a majestic combination. And then uh, verse 5, I get this. There are times when I'm overwhelmed at the fact that I'm with Jackie, and, and um, she just, I, I'm overwhelmed by that. And, and then he mentions the hair and the teeth and the cheeks again. We've been through this already, but um, 
it's funny, I got a text from somebody who can't come on Wednesday nights, but who's been listening to the podcast. And um, uh, the question was, doesn't my spouse ever get tired of me saying these things? Okay, these nice things. Uh, here you go. We've heard about the hair, the teeth, and the cheeks already. Does a woman ever get tired of hearing how stunning she is? You, you, do you, okay, some of the women are, are shaking their head. That ought to be a cue to you guys. But I, ser- I'd never seen that. And nobody's ever come in for marriage counseling, and the wife is saying, he's, just, he's complimenting me all the time and telling me how beautiful I am. It's, it's just enough already. He's got to stop. Okay, that just never has happened. Okay, and then again, uh, eight and nine. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one, the only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. Um, What is this about? In ancient Middle Eastern cultures, the king had more than one queen, and he had many concubines as well. And there were virgins also in any city where there was a king who was pining to become one of the queens or the concubines. And we know that this was written earlier in Solomon's life, so he hadn't quite yet worked up to the 700 wives and the 300 concubines that he might eventually have. Uh, He's at only 60 and 80 right now. And in fact, the concubines are ahead of the queens at this point, which is kind of interesting. Um, And let let me stop and say this. This is in direct contradiction to what God says about marriage for his people in Genesis 2.24. We went through this once already. Uh, that the husband is going to leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Essentially what God is saying is that under his um, picture of marriage, every man is going to be a one woman man in his kingdom. This was antithetical and countercultural to the rest of ancient Middle Eastern culture. This was revolutionary. And the interesting thing, of course, is that we look in Scripture and we see repeatedly in Scripture where God's men violated this, right? David violated this. Uh, Jacob violated this. So just remember that as hard as it is to live in our cultural context and not be pulled into the cultural mores, That's always been true of God's people. I'm not making excuses for sin. I'm just saying that sometimes we sit around and we think it would be so much easier if we just lived a thousand years ago. I don't think so. By the way, I don't want I I would miss my cell phone too much. But you you get the point I'm making there. Just because Solomon had all these wives and concubines didn't mean that God was happy about it. He certainly wasn't happy with what David was doing. We know that. It just happened. And the Bible doesn't pull any punches about the reality of human beings and their sin. So, but it is Solomon saying, look, in our cultural context, you understood coming into this that you were going to be one of many. But it is him saying, you are the best of all that I have right now. So it's a, in our context, we're thinking, this is kind of a weird compliment. I don't know if I'd be too happy with that compliment. But it is a compliment in their context, Okay. He's saying, look, you're so wonderful that none of these other women could carry your briefcase. You're the best of the best. In verse 10, she's radiant and glorious. So verses 11 through uh, 13, she and the others continue the narration. I went down to the nut orchard to look at the blossoms of the valley to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. Before I was aware, my desire set me among the chariots of my kinsmen, a prince. And the others say, return, return, O Shulamite, return, return, that we may look upon you. It's a little bit obscure, but here's what's going on. She heads down to the nut garden because she thinks Solomon might be there. She's she's missing him and pursuing him again. And he is. He's there, but he's ready for her. He's there ready for her with this romantic gesture. He's got a chariot, and he sweeps her away with great flair. Think about sweeping somebody off their feet. This is kind of what's happening here. And they ride off, and her heart is captivated even more by the gesture. She wanted to see him, and apparently she wanted to make 
Uh, he wanted to make her more than happy. This was a true romantic gesture. Here you go. Th this sounds simple and cheesy to some guys, but guys, I will tell you, if, if you haven't um, made dinner yourself, everything, for your wife or your girlfriend, you're missing out. It's a big deal. They like it. Oh, and by the way, that would include doing the dishes. Yeah, sorry, Rich. Okay, I'm calling Lisa tomorrow and telling her that you're telling it, telling her that you're going to do this for her. Okay, is there is there at least one woman in here who would say who would give me a witness on? It? Can I get a witness for this? Yeah. Okay. Wouldn't that be great? Okay. And and look, I would be happy if Jackie stopped at Jack in the Box and got me an ultimate cheeseburger and fries and a diet coke to offset the ultimate cheeseburger and the fries. But but. For her, I'd, I'd, I'd have to actually cook something, okay? And, and that's the beauty of it. That's a romantic gesture, okay? This is very similar what he's doing here. Anyway, the others see the spectacle of them zipping off, and they want more. They want an encore. They want a return show. And Solomon protests. He says, we're not going to do that. This isn't about you. This is about us. And she's not going to do something undignified, something to compromise her honor, such as get in front of a bunch of military men and dance for them. That's the metaphor he uses. He's, she's not going to do something undignified for you. Too bad. You missed it. If you didn't see it the first time, it's over. I know it's kind of weird, but we don't live in their context. This is the stuff they used to talk about and do back then. And then 7.1 through 7.9a, he continues uh, to, uh, well, look at the end of um, 6. And then into seven, and, and he starts talking again. Why should you look upon the Shulamite as upon a dance before two armies? There's that army thing. And then he continues. How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O noble daughter. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. <laughs> I'm glad you guys find some humor in that one. Uh, your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bath Rabin. Your nose is like the uh, a tower of Lebanon, which looks toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like Carmel, and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. O may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, and your scent like the breath uh, uh, of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. Wow. This may be the most intimate and erotic and provocative passage that we have in the whole book. And this is Solomon speaking. Uh, this description goes even deeper than the wedding night. So what, what's the point of that? It means what Swindoll has said all along about the book, The Song of Solomon. Love that is nurtured is love that grows. If you've been here on Sunday morning, this last Sunday morning, I made the pitch about how if you want to have wisdom, you have to work at it. You have to set some other things aside and really invest in it. It's the same thing with romantic love. It doesn't just happen. Uh, those wonderful feelings that just seem to happen to you early on, you have to work at those to keep them. And you can keep them if you work at it. But if you don't have them anymore... I got to tell you, before you start whining and complaining about it, you better, you better really be honest about whether or not you've put any investment into it. You have to work at this stuff. And, and notice on the wedding night when he was describing her, he started at the head and went down to her feet. Now he's going the other way. He's starting with the feet and he's working up. Now, I will tell you, this is me personally. And what's interesting is I was in the women's shoe business for seven years. Um, I was a great shoe salesman. Uh, I used to work at the Bakers in Christown Mall. Any of you old enough to remember the Bakers at Christown Mall across from Farrell's? Anybody old enough to remember Farrell's? Okay. Yeah. Uh, that's right. Yeah. And the zoo. And um, anyway, 
After that, I moved to Abilene, managed women's shoes. Okay, here's the irony. I, I can't, I really hate feet. I really do. I think they are the ugliest part of the human anatomy by far. Uglier even than the elbow. I'm telling you, I think that feet are dramatically ugly. But I love Jackie's feet. Seriously, I do. And she gets embarrassed when I talk about this, which I do at least three or four times a week publicly. And I tweet about it, okay? Not really. I love them. I, 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 I love rubbing them. I, it, there's, they're her feet. I love them. They're just great. Other feet... Every other, uh, for years, I just can't stand, I can't stand the way feet look. So I read this and I go, wow, Solomon must really love her. Your feet are beautiful in sandals. I'm, I'm the kind of guy that's like, would you just put on a pair of boots, please? It would be great, okay? That would be, that would be very helpful to me, okay? And then he says, your belly is like a heap of wheat. Guys, have you ever used that one on a girl? Ladies, you ever had that one said to you? Hey, baby. Your midsection, kind of like a big bag of wheat. Cool. You know? Okay, but in their context, understand wheat is extraordinarily valuable. It's a very sought-after asset. It was used as currency. This is a great compliment. It's a great compliment. I know it sounds goofy to us, Okay. Uh, her neck is another indication of her strength. Heshbon was known for its clear crystal water. Uh, her nose is like the tower in Lebanon looking toward Damascus. This actually has significant meaning. It means that the woman has defensive strength. She has enough strength to protect the man if need be. Um, the ability to protect the interests of her husband. Um, you want to you wanna set your husband off real quick? Go out there and start telling other people, your friends, that, that you don't like him very much or he's kind of a jerk or he's got flaws. That's the quickest way to set your husband off and disrespect him is to let people know that you think he's got flaws. Of course he has flaws. But you don't need to go around broadcasting that. She doesn't do that. Damascus was the capital of Syria, which was a chronic and constant enemy of Israel. And so her nose as a tower toward Damascus meant she has strength. She can defend her husband's honor. That is a big, big deal. And then he said, your, your head crowns you like Carmel. Mount Carmel is the site of the big Elijah throwdown with the prophets of Baal. You remember that, right? If you don't, you should read that story. It's one of the great Old Testament stories. It's also the most beautiful mountain in the region. And it's interesting that Carmel, California is also spectacular with mountains. It's very beautiful there. It was aptly named, I think. And purple hair, not dyed purple like today. That's not what he's talking about. Again, purple dye is very, very expensive in their context. And so when he says your hair is purple, he's giving her a, a yet another uh, compliment. And, and, and he is caught in the tresses of her hair and in the tresses of her love. I mean, this is a double entendre here. He, he, he slides his hand into her hair, and, and he can't get it out, and that's a good thing. Okay? And then again, really, a palm tree and its clusters? This is just... Again, anybody been called a palm tree? No? And anybody gone any further with the palm tree metaphor, the way this guy's going here, okay? Wheat, palm trees, I mean, she's really something. But palm trees in their culture are considered statuesque, magnificent. Again, it's a compliment of the highest order. So magnificent is this compliment that some women in their culture were actually named palm tree. You remember a woman in the Old Testament named Tamar? Tamar means palm tree. That was her name. Palm tree. And when I say that this is intimate, erotic, and provocative, it's verse 8. I will climb that palm tree and grasp its fruit. It's pretty serious stuff. And then she responds, and it's all good. 9b through 13. 
he says uh, in, at, the end of, uh, at the beginning of 9, and your mouth is like the best wine, and she right, right away jumps in and says, it, the wine, goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields and, and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance, and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O oh, my beloved." So she responds by saying, it's going to be good. I'm like fine wine that goes down silky smooth over lips and teeth. In other words, she's saying, listen, pal, I'm worth it. I'm worth the wait. I'm worth the trouble. It's okay to say that, isn't it? I'm worth it. I'm getting nothing from you guys. It is okay to say that, ladies. It's okay to say that. And verse 10 is a repeat. And this, and, and it's obviously a key verse, but I want you to consider two things about it. Number one, it's a reverse of sorts of Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, uh, the man and the woman have sinned by eating the apple, and God is pronouncing the curses. He's already pronounced the curse on, on, um, uh, on Satan, and now he's working on the curses for the woman. And he says in... 16, your desire shall be for your husband, in other words, his power. It's not like you will have sexual desire for your husband. It's your desire will be for your husband's power, and he's going to use it to rule over you. He shall rule over you, okay? So this is a reversal of Genesis 3:16. His desire is now for her and to serve her. And that's the way marriage is supposed to be, this this mutual submission, this mutual protection, this mutual love, because this is the way Christ has loved us. And then secondly, it's really a picture of Jesus' desire for us. He is our beloved, and we are his beloved. And then verses 11 through 13, the woman now takes the initiative, which is a good thing. Um, men enjoy this, by the way, women. Women, hello, women. Men enjoy this when you take the initiative, okay? I'm not kidding around. They like it when you take the initiative. They do. They, they, they don't, in the security of a strong marital relationship, the woman needs to be the, aggress, the sexual aggressor at, at times, and more than maybe once a year, okay? The, the husband does not see this as forward, but here you go. The husband sees it as the highest level remark, nonverbal remark of affirmation and respect that you can give him to pursue him in that way. It's a high emotional need for a guy. If, if you don't believe that sexual fulfillment is high on the list of emotional needs for men, you've been reading too many stupid magazines and going to too many stupid websites because they're lying, okay? It's, I'm sorry, it, stop the tape for just a second. It's Jerry Seinfeld saying, women need a reason for sex, men just need a place, okay? It, it is an important emotional need for men, and it really never goes away. It really never goes away. And here's what she's saying. She's saying, we've been waiting for this. We've saved ourselves for this. I've saved myself. Let's go and enjoy it. Verse 13, I've waited for you. I've saved myself for you. And I'm going to give it all to you. So let's explore each other. Let's do it excitedly. But let's do it leisurely as well. We are each other's now. This should be a big part of our life together now. And there are more meta metaphors, some of them familiar to us, a few of them are new. The wine and the vineyard and the pomegranates and the choice fruit, we've been through those already. But mandrakes, that's a new one. Those were actually considered in ancient Middle Eastern cultures to be quite erotic. They were like aphrodisiacs, the scent of them. It's a plant that has a beautiful fragrance from greenish-yellow flowers and was believed to have magical powers of some kind, kind of like an aphrodisiac. But this love narrative that she spins, spins here 
does have another level of meaning for us in terms of our relationship with Jesus, as well as our romantic relationships. Two things. Number one, love values the old, staid ways of expression, but also enjoys the new ways of expression. There is something valuable in routine and familiarity, but there's also something valuable in pursuing newness at times as well. Here's the second thing, and this is really important. Love always looks ahead. Love always looks ahead. Jackie and I have been married 30 years. We are still looking ahead in our relationship, our love, our purpose with each other, our partnership. We, we, we love what has happened so far. But we're also sitting around, we're not sitting around going, well, the best is behind us. We're looking forward. And that's true of the gospel, too. The, the love of Christ compels us to constantly be looking forward. I am called upward to the heavenly call. And, and, and that someday we're going to be in the new Jerusalem. Love always looks forward. It doesn't settle in the present and in the past. It's really important. And then the last chapter, verses 1 through, uh, one through 7, she is speaking still, and we start to get into some counsel, eventually, but she starts by saying this, Oh, that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breast. What in the world is that? Well, we'll talk about it. If I found you outside, I would kiss you and none would despise me. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to teach me. I would give you spiced wine to drink, the juice of my pomegranate. His left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Under the apple tree I awaken to you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is, is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. It flashes, its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. So verse 1 does seem kind of strange to us, but this is a cultural thing again. In their culture, a brother and sister could show affection to each other in public, but not a romantic couple. It's very strange. So she was hindered by that, and so she's saying, I wish, you know, in public, I wish you were like my brother so, and, so that I could treat you like that. She's dying to be with him in that way. She wants him so badly. She wants to be with him so badly. But remember, he's a public figure, so she doesn't get a lot of time for that. And then verse 2, the house of my mother, she taught me. It is, it is the parents' responsibility to teach their children about courtship and sex. Shocking in our culture today, but that's true. It's the parents' responsibility to do this. The number of parents who want to delegate that to anybody but themselves. I mean, how dangerous is that? So this idea that parents should be involved in that is not a new construct, but we're pretty good, we've gotten pretty good at ducking that important part of parenting. And she would give him spice wine and the juice of a pomegranate. Both items um, represent refreshment. She would refresh him. And there is certainly the sense that at times spouses can grate on each other also. Those of you that have been married, have you noticed that sometimes it, you can grate on each other? Or does that just not happen at Redemption Arcadia? Yeah, that happens. But if there's never a time when a spouse can refresh you and encourage you and, and affirm you, then your relationship is in big trouble. If, even if there's grating, and there is, can your spouse also refresh you and encourage you and advocate for you? And if they're not, that's where you're going to get into trouble. The grading isn't the trouble. It's when you stop doing the other stuff. Verse 3 is a pretty famous verse. It describes the secure and erotic caressing embrace of a lover. And then verse 4, she, she turns to the crowd. 
the daughters of Jerusalem, and she gives them counsel, and here's the counsel, wait for sex. It's worth the wait. It's what God calls us to do. She says, don't open the garden too soon. An early harvest of your sexual garden may seem like a really good idea, but it's not. Don't, do not allow anybody to pick the fruit too soon. And verse 5 is a literary technique. She muses as an observer would muse at them walking up together, husband and wife. The Hebrew word translated leaning um, literally means to be knit together. It's that same word that's used in, in Genesis that means that you're knit together, you're bound together as one. They're walking up out of the wilderness after a long, loving stroll together. Have I, have I mentioned this before? What's, uh, there are two, um, um, the two top lies of men on uh, dating websites. Have I mentioned this to you guys? Okay. Uh, research, I read this essay about six months ago. Research has shown that the top two lies of men on dating websites um, are, and people say, how much you make? No, that's not it. Here you go, number one. I think this shows how vapid some men are, but number one, their height, okay? Okay, if, you, if you're 5'9 and you say you're 6'2 on a website, she's going to notice when you meet, okay? All right, and if she doesn't, you don't want to be with her, all right? And number two, <laughs> and number two, here you go. Number two is much more subtle and nuanced. Second most common lie on a male profile on a dating site, I like to go for walks. Why? why? Why would a guy write that into his profile? I have a sensitive side. I have a sensitive side. You're going to enjoy spending long, strolling walks with me. Okay, she's going to figure that one out too. You guys have been dating for six weeks, and for the third time she walks in, and you're on the couch with your bowl of Doritos, and you're in your shorts, in your ugly shirt. She says, hey, let's go for a walk, and you go, ah, game, She's going to go, okay, I'm out of here, all right? Well, they were on this long, loving stroll, and they're coming up out of the wilderness. And she ties their love to the love that his mother had for her father. She ties, here you go. Your relationship when you have kids is on display for your kids, and they may not appear like they're watching, but they're watching, and their understanding of how that relationship is supposed to work, a lot of it is going to come from how you treat each other. And if a husband honors and respects and loves his wife as Christ loved the church, and you have daughters, they're going to look for guys who will do that in their relationships. It's, it's, it's important for parents to get this. She ties their love to the love that a mother had for her father, which bore him his son, and they are going to continue that love tradition and relationship. This is very beautiful, very poetic, but it takes a little work and, and, uh, to get and familiarity with their rhetoric. And then verse 6 is where we get the contemporary tradition of the wedding ring. There is a seal on their hearts, the, an emotional seal of love, as well as a visible seal on his arm, a tattoo of sorts, indicating that he is taken. When, when I do a wedding, I've done more than 400 weddings now. Always been an exchange of rings. And when, I, when the rings are exchanged, I say to them, repeat after me. I'll start with the guy. So this last Saturday, Jared, say to Annie, with this ring, with this ring, I seal my promise, I seal my promise to be a faithful and loving husband to be a faithful and loving husband as God is my witness. I seal my promise. Okay? And she says this seal comes because our love is as strong as death. What, what does that mean? Now, you've probably heard that saying that there, there are only two things in this world that are certain, right? What are they? Death and taxes. Who said that? No, I mean, originally. I think it was Ben Franklin. Okay, ben Franklin, all right? Well, there are also two things in life that are irresistible and relentlessly persistent, and that would be love and death. Love and death. You ever run into something? I'm never going to love again. I'm, I've been burned too much. I'm never going to love again. They're going to love again. It's relentless, and it's irresistible. Love and death. 
it's so true that how relentless and irresistible those two things are that um, that great theologian and, and movie screenwriter, Woody Allen, actually made a movie in 1975 by that title. How many of you have seen Love and Death? Steve and I are the only scholars in the... It's a great movie. It's a funny movie. Anyway, and then, and then jealousy is fierce as the grave. That's in parallelism. It's in poetic parallelism with the love and death, yes. But jealousy... We always think of jealousy kind of in a pejorative way, negatively. But the notion here describes primarily that which is resolute devotion, not selfish ambition. There's a jealousy that is, that is born of resolute devotion as well. Uh, but I will also say this. There is a sense in which a wife has every right to be jealous of her husband's love if, if he's giving it somewhere else. It hurts. And the pain of that hurt can be as, as unyielding as the grave, which she says. And this love and jealousy are so powerful that it's like the heat and fire of the Lord. It cannot be quenched. Um, genuine love scorns purchase and resists extinction. In other words, genuine love can't be bought. It scorns being purchased and it resists extinction. That's how genuine love operates. Humans tried to quench the love of the Lord at Calvary, and they weren't able to do it. Didn't work either. And then verses 8 through 14 are the final advice and comments in the book. The others say, they ask a question. We have a little sister, and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister on the day that, uh, when she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build a door on her... Uh, we, uh, if she is a wall, we will build on her an abandonment of silver, but if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. And then she answers and says, I was a wall, and my breasts were like towers. Then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman. He, uh, he let out the vineyard to keepers. Each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. My vineyard, my very own, is before me. You, O Solomon, may have the thousand, and the keepers of the fruit, two hundred. And he says, O you who dwell in the gardens, with companions listening for your voice, let me hear it. And she ends the book. She has the last word. Isn't that just so true? Make haste, my beloved. Be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. As a family, there needs to be protections in place, both physical and instructional, for the proper and appropriate time of certain rites of passages for younger members of the family, for things like marriage for the children. And it's not meant to coddle the children. Um, I would agree with the assessment that in most ways, uh, children are not growing up fast enough today, in most ways. I'm, I'm a college instructor, and I see that every time I walk into the classroom. They're just, they're just more and more immature all the time completely incapable, most of them, of making any sort of decision, small or large. Just, they just can't do it. They can't do it. It's, it's, really, it's really sad. But one area where children are growing up way too fast and with no wisdom and guidance is sexually. And you just can't deny this. The sexualization and the pornification of our culture is massive and rampant. Uh, the Shulamite woman says there needs to be a wall around little girls. Eventually there will be a door, but that door must be used in cooperation with the wall. The wall being a wise biblical sexual ethic and not in foolish promiscuity. Do you see that? Build the wall around the young girl. Eventually there's going to be a door, but that door needs to be used in conjunction with the biblical sexual ethic, the wall. And then she gives herself and her love with Solomon as the, extreme, as the supreme example of this. She had a wall. Her garden and vineyard developed at the right time. The door was eventually opened at the right time and under the correct circumstance. And then look at verse 14, that last verse. She closes with celebration. Come on, let's get to it, my husband. Let's go. Biblical sex is not prudish. How many of you have ever had the opportunity to sit under Larry Wright's teaching, even just once? Yeah. Did you ever hear him talk about marriage and sex? 
Okay, yeah. You can still get his tapes, by the way. They're still available. Abundantlife.org, I think it is. Um, when he would talk about sex within the biblical context, he would say, it, within the biblical context, sex. It's yaha time. That was kind of his trademark way of describing it. Yaha time. Okay? Some of you, this can't get over with soon enough. Want me to say yaha one more time? <laughs> it, it's good and fun. Paul David Tripp in his book Sex and Money says that a proper biblical sexual ethic is even a form of worship, a form of submission, as Christ submitted to the cross for us. So there's the Song of Solomon. I want to end with like some final application, some thoughts on marriage, and, and especially thoughts on, it's going to eventually tie into marriage, but I want to talk about this idea of flourishing identity and voice. Human flourishing, human identity, and human voice. Uh, James Houston, who, who's, who know, James, who's heard of, read of any of James Houston's? He's a pastor and author. No? Good stuff. He writes this. Marriage is the relational reality that calls us into our weakness. Can I get an amen? That, that line right there alone is gold. Marriage is the relational reality that calls us into our weakness, if, in fact, we're willing to grow in love. The momentum of the verses tonight is one where the husband's and wife's love for each other grows. In marriage, we are called into our brokenness, our inability to love one another well, and our unhealthy desires. Whether we feel strong or weak, therefore, God invites us to walk forward in the truth of our weakness so that we might know his power. That is good stuff right there. Um, I believe this is the key underlying current to the purpose and intent that God has for us through the Song of Solomon. That's the underlying intent. That we're called into this weakness so that we might know God's power. Uh, it's interesting, in our, in our current worldly view, culture, and perspective... Much has been said about the right of every individual, and now it's not just a right, now it's even a mandate that human beings flourish, have identity, and have a voice. I have to flourish, I have to have an identity, and you have to recognize my identity, and I have to have a voice, and I must be heard. And I, and I have, I, I, it's not even a right, it's a mandate that I flourish. And whatever my definition of flourishing is, I have to be able to flourish. Flourish, identity, and voice. Big deal today. Um, and the right, or the mandate, to flourishing identity and voice are all accomplished through, in our culture, self-achievement, self-actualization, and self-construction. Self-achievement, self-actualization, and self-construction. We construct our own identities. We don't like who we are, we can become somebody else. We don't like who we're with, we jettison that relationship and go for someone else. We don't like where we are, we move. We don't like what we're doing, we do something else. It's all done through self, self, self. You notice that? Self, self, self. I'm in charge. I have the power and the authority. These are my mandates. And in case you hadn't noticed, this quest for flourishing identity and voice has now become necessarily a zero-sum game. A zero-sum game. So despite the condescending rhetoric to the contrary, people today are convinced that there must be a search and seizure of worldly power and status in order to accomplish this flourishing identity and voice. There has to be power in order to be able to do this. And you have to seize the power. So humility need not apply. And that necessarily means there are going to be winners and losers. There just are. Have you been in the public sphere lately? Have you seen how polarized we are? This is the result of this flourishing identity and voice construct that's going on. Okay? It's interesting. The Bible is also very concerned 
about flourishing identity and voice. Did you know that? The Bible is really concerned about these three things. But it goes about it in a way that the world deems foolish. According to the Bible, flourishing comes from serving others, not lording it over others. That's way different than our culture. I can't flourish unless I'm lording it over some people. The Bible says, no, not going to be that way. Matthew 20, verses 25 and 26. But Jesus called them to him and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great one exercises authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Flourishing in the Bible also comes by being last, not first. Mark 9.35, and Jesus sat down and called the, the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Flourishing in the Bible comes by embracing the littleness of our roles while honoring others. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 21 through 26. The eye cannot say to the hand, Paul's talking about church members now. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we may think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unrepresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which are... Our more presentable parts do not require, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Flourishing comes by humility. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourself. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interest of others. And flourishing comes by weakness. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. Paul was talking about these great revelations that God was giving him. And he says this, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of these revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger from Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that this, this thorn should leave me. But God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Listen to that verse. The power of Christ rests on Paul when he is weak. That's not just true of Paul. That's true of us as well. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong, because the strength comes from Christ. How about identity? Um, in Scripture, identity is found in the righteousness, holiness, resurrection, and sanctification of Jesus, which we receive, we receive, we don't earn it or achieve it as a gift of grace from God. There is no zero-sum game with identity when it comes to Jesus. You just receive it from him as a gift of grace. And then our voice, or more appropriately, what some people would call our personhood or our individuation from others, that comes from being an image bearer of God. Genesis chapter 1. God says, let us make humans, Adam, in our, uh, in our image and after our likeness. That's where our voice comes from. That's where our individuation comes from. That's where our personhood comes from. We're created in his likeness. Our voice is the result of what the potter did to the clay, what, the, what God did to us, not what the clay is doing to the potter. That's a metaphor that Paul uses in, in Romans. So flourishing identity and voice, our personhood, comes not through achieving, but through receiving God's grace, gifts, and promises. Do you see the difference there? We don't achieve it, we receive it. I cannot overstate the importance of this. I want you to think about this. The relationship between the two lovers in the Song of Solomon, is their relationship achieved or received? It's received. Is their relationship lorded or served? 
These are all now rhetorical questions, and they're not trick questions, okay? Is their relationship manipulated or ministered? Is their relationship proud or humbled? Is their relationship driven by a quest for status and power or by love, empathy, and compassion? And then here's the second thing. I want to just read Genesis, part of Genesis chapter 3 and comment on it and then close with this. So understand that this is right after these two verses. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh and the man and his wife are both naked and were not ashamed. This was paradise. Perfect intimacy, perfect vulnerability, perfect authenticity. It's an intimacy that all of us have deep in our hearts and pine for, but have never experienced and wish we could and will someday in the New Jerusalem. But now look what happens. Now the serpent was more crafty than any, of the, any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of, the tree of, the garden, uh, eat of any tree in the garden? So what's Satan doing here? It's not a full frontal attack. He's just starting an innocent conversation. Hey, man, I'm not, I'm not clear on this. Can you help me out with this? Did he really say you can't eat of any tree? This is what Satan does to us. He walks up next to us as a friend, as somebody who needs some help, as a, as a counselor. And, and he starts kind of whispering stuff in our ears, creating some doubt, creating some dialogue where we feel like we have to defend God. This is how he gets us. And the woman said, well, we can eat of any, uh, we could eat the fruit of, of the trees of the garden, any of the trees, but God did say you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, that tree way, way over there, in the midst, way, way over there. It's not even in front of them every day. Neither shall you touch it. Nobody knows why she added that line, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good from evil. Satan loves to tell us, loves to tell us how God really doesn't have our best interests at heart and that he does. And if you just do it my way, it's going to be a lot more fun. And so the woman, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desired to make one wise. There you go. That's what I call the triad of temptation. It was good for food. It, it appeals to the pleasure of our flesh. Okay? It was a delight to her eyes. There's the glitz. There's the stuff that distracts us and gets us to the left or to the right, as Proverbs says, off of our game. And then for pride. In other words, in order to feel superior over others. Those three things get us every time. And when they're in combination with each other, watch out. It's powerful. Pride, our flesh, and our eyes. By the way, John repeats this in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. He calls these the things of the world. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. He quotes out of Genesis 3 then, saying those are the things of the world. So she saw the triad of temptation. She took the fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. The eyes of both of them were open. And they knew that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Some of you have heard me talk about this before. Anybody ever been around a fig tree? Okay, you, you, my parents had a fig tree in their backyard for 40 years. That's usually the lifespan of a fig tree, and theirs was exactly 40 years. And in its heyday, those leaves were like this big, and they were a deep, deep, deep green, kind of a blue. They were so beautiful and lush. And they're big enough to cover these areas of the body but if you ever get up close to one of those fig leaves and start to feel it it's like sandpaper how's that for a constant reminder of your disobedience to god just think about the discomfort the the chafing and they haven't invented vaseline yet okay then they heard the sound of the lord god walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Now, is God like, wow, he's really clever. I can't find him. Is this a geographical question? No. He's asking him a spiritual question. He's saying, all right, what happened? 
you've never behaved like this before. What do we do when we sin? Rather than running to God's grace and mercy, what do we do? We hide from him. This is so perfectly picturesque of how we are. Where are you? And he said, well, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. I hid myself. And God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman you gave me to be with me, she gave me fruit and of the tree, and I ate. So the first, uh, the first sin is defying proper authority. How many of us do that? All the time. And then the second th- sin is once we're caught, we blame shift. So he blames the woman and God. Okay? And then the man said to the woman, um, I'm sorry, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? And she said, well, the serpent deceived me, and so I ate. So again, she's blame shifting too. Isn't that what we do? It's a perfect picture of what we do. And then God gives these these three sets of curses. And one of the things we have to understand about these curses is that they are representative and not comprehensive. So he curses uh, the serpent in a representative way, but it doesn't show us the total nature of all the curses on Satan. He curses the woman, gives us a couple things, but it doesn't represent the total curse on, on her. And then he curses the man, gives a couple of examples, doesn't represent everything, and included in the man's curse is the fact that all of creation is messed up now. Here you go. You and I today are living in a world of thorns and thistles. And, and it's, it's hard sometimes for us to understand that when we come to Jesus and we get right with God, that that doesn't mean that everything else is going to be right. We still have to live in this world of thorns and thistles. We still have to live in this world where people are sinning. But not only that, we have to live in a world that's atrophying, in a universe that's atrophying. Do, do you understand that the salvation of Jesus is not just a restoration and reconciliation of us. It's a restoration of the entire universe, which is atrophying and fallen. When Jesus comes again, he's not going to wipe everything out and start over. He's going to restore everything, and that's going to become the new Jerusalem. He's going to make everything right again. It's going to be absolutely beautiful. I know that many of us look at Genesis chapter 3 and we discard it. We say, ah, myth, legend, whatever, not true, not real. But doesn't it ring true to the human condition? Does, does, it, does it matter if it's Hebrew poetry or Hebrew history or wh- what kind of genre? Does any of that matter if, if the point of the text is that we sin and we blame <laughs> and everything is messed up? That's the point of the text. And of course, Hidden in verse 15, you understand, is the fact that the Messiah is coming again. During the curse on Satan, he says, your offspring will bruise her offspring's foot, and her offspring will bruise your offspring's head. In, in the ancient Hebrew, what that means is that her offspring is going to be wounded. He was bruised in the foot. That's the crucifixion. But his offspring, Satan's offspring, is going to be uh, bruised in the head, which means utter destruction. Read Romans 16, 19. He's going to be crushed under the foot of Jesus. Satan is. He's utterly destroyed. So we know that the Messiah is coming. But here's another reality about Genesis 3. You and I all have Genesis 3 moments every single day. Do you understand that? We all have Genesis 3 moments every day. We're getting whispered to. We're getting lured. Uh, James, in the book of James, James calls Satan the expert wrangler, the expert fisherman. He knows just the right bait to toss out to you. And because of our nature, we're willing to take that bait. Flesh, eyes, pride. Genesis, the question in Genesis 3 is really quite simple. Here it is. Who are you going to trust? 
The woman decided to trust Satan and not God. Who are we going to trust? Every time that lure comes, every time our flesh cries out for something, every time our eyes see something, every time our pride kicks in, who are we going to trust? Are we going to trust the world? Are we going to trust Satan? Or are we going to trust the power from above, the resurrected Christ? That is an important question that you and I deal with every single day. Where does your fulfillment, flourishing, identity, personhood, and power come from? Does it come from above or from below? And if it's coming from below, you're in big trouble. I'm in big trouble. And we take the bait of temptation because in it we think we'll find fulfillment, self-actualization, and redemption. Adam and Eve ate the fruit because they believed that in the fruit they would find fulfillment and self-actualization. They would become like God. What God had given them wasn't good enough for them suddenly. Could you imagine living in paradise and it not being good enough? There's a movie. Um, how many of you have seen the movie No Country for Old Men? A few of you. Okay. Anybody read the novel? Cormac McCarthy is one of my favorite novelists. He's a little bit quirky and odd, but I like him. Yeah. Doesn't use any punctuation, isn't it weird? <laughs> anyway, in the movie, which won Best Picture in 2008, directed by the Coen brothers, it's the story of a guy who has an honest job, married, doesn't make a great living. They're living in a, in a trailer park, but they've got a, got a nice life together. And he's out hunting one day in 1980 West Texas. He's out hunting, and he thinks he's shot a deer or something, and he goes to investigate. And while he's investigating, he happens upon a huge Mexican cartel drug deal that went very bad. And everybody on both sides of this drug deal had been killed. And as a result, there was all these drugs that were laying there, and there was a satchel filled with $2.4 million. And the story is really about the ethical dilemma of this guy, Llewellyn Moss, who really had a decent life, but he saw this satchel of $2.4 million. There's a picture up there, right? Yeah. There he is, pondering. And, and you know what's going through his mind is he's thinking, this is probably going to get me into a lot of trouble. But it's $2.4 million. I could change our lives. And he wrestles with it and wrestles with it. You, you realize that this scene is actually a contemporary picture of Genesis chapter 3. It's the apple. That satchel filled with 2.4 million is the apple. Is he going to take a bite of the apple? And yeah, he does. He takes the $2.4 million. And that sets off a chain of events, which you'll find in the rest of the movie, or in the book, if you happen to read the book, that eventually leads to his death. Because the Mexican cartel is not going to let anybody get away with stealing their $2.4 million. He ends up dying for it. So what he thought would bring him fulfillment, what he thought would bring him joy, what he thought would bring him contentment and identity and all the stuff that he wanted in life, he dies for it. Maybe you're in business and you decide you're going to break a law so you can close that big deal. Maybe you lie because you're looking for fulfillment and redemption somewhere other than in God's promises. I once heard a pastor say that the definition of sin could go like this. Sin is momentary disbelief in God's promises. That moment you sin, you're telling God, I don't believe that what you have for me is better than what I'm about to do. So sin is actually an act of disbelief. Maybe you succumb to an affair, can be fulfilling for a season, but not for long. Maybe you gossip about somebody or everyone. You raise yourself up by dragging others down. It's amazing in the New Testament how much Paul talks about how bad that is, to try to build yourself up by dragging others down. But we all do it. These are all Genesis 3 moments. But what did God say in Genesis 3? 15. 
He said, the Messiah is coming. He said, I already know what I'm going to do. I've got this covered. The redemption is coming when my son, who's going to live a perfect life, then be hung on a cross because he annoyed the wrong people, even though he didn't do anything wrong. And then three days later, he's going to come busting out of that tomb with new life. And that little story right there has even greater impact and meaning for us at Arcadia this week, probably more than any other week. We have uh, right now eight confirmed baptisms for Sunday morning and maybe two more. I've got two more meetings to go. It's, it'll, it'll, it's already going to be the biggest baptism Sunday we've ever had at our Redemption Arcadia. And, and all I think about is that moment when I lay the person down in the water and I say, you've been buried with Christ, and then pulling them out of the water and you've been raised to walk in newness of life. That's what we've all been done, uh, had done to us, is we've been raised to walk in newness of life. Take your Genesis 3 moment and take it captive to the resurrection. Let me pray. God, thank you for your word and its truth. And thank you for this great book of the Song of Solomon and for teaching us out of it and through it. And God, I just pray that we would take this word by the power of your Holy Spirit, apply it to our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. See you Sunday for me.